Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. This week we are continuing our Easter series titled The Plot. One of the lessons we learn from the Easter story is that you can do everything right and still end up on a cross. Though Jesus never wronged anyone, he faced opposition from all those he came to save. Yet Jesus responded with remarkable love, patience, and forgiveness. What lessons can we learn from his example? Listen as Pastor Tim Herring continues the plot. We hope that this talk encourages you and inspires you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. I have been uh, reading in my quiet time through the Old Testament. For those of you that aren't familiar with a quiet time, a quiet time just refers to setting aside a little time, and usually for me in the morning where I read the Bible for a little while and then I I pray, and in my quiet time, and I've had the habit of having a quiet time for decades. And I've been going through the Old Testament, though, recently. I just finished the book of Daniel. And this year, I noticed a a sadness I've had as I've been working my way through the Old Testament. And it's a sadness related to this fact that so many people began well spiritually, but they didn't end well. I'm just saddened to read some of these stories. Of course, Solomon was one of the best examples of what I'm talking about here. He was someone who, you know, God had had given him wisdom. God had given him wealth. There was no one like Solomon in his day. And at the beginning of Solomon's reign, he loved God. I'm convinced he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But toward the end of his life, he... He went astray. He started marrying these women who worshipped false gods or idols, and it it stole his heart away. And he did not end well, and because of his unfaithfulness to God, a civil war actually erupted in Israel. And many others were like him. As I read the stories of these different ones, that I think, you know, they're so excited about God and they love God, but why are they not ending well? And there were different reasons why different ones didn't. But there are lots of examples, and there are ones in the New Testament as well that the Apostle Paul points to. This person has forsaken me. This person has left. This person has suffered shipwreck in regard to faith. That's the terminology the Apostle Paul uses of some. They've suffered shipwreck concerning their faith, which is an interesting picture, in my mind anyway. You imagine a ship that's going along and suddenly there's a huge storm or it hits a rock or something and it just breaks apart. And I have known people in my own life, not just in the Bible, but I've known people in my own life that seem to really love God and and then they did not end well. They didn't, they didn't make it to the finish line. I'm not suggesting they lost their salvation. I personally am convinced that when a person puts his or her faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, they are saved. I mean, they are born again. They are a child of God. They receive the Holy Spirit. They receive the gift of eternal life, which starts then and then goes how long? Well, eternally. I'm convinced that's the case, and yet I've known some that did not end well in terms of their faith, and it's even made me wonder, maybe they never did know Christ in the first place. And we don't want to be that person. We want to be ones who end well, because I think we all understand that it's the ending that matters, right? It's not the beginning. It's not how we begin that matters. If you're involved with a race, and two-thirds through the race, you're the number of front, you know, front 
runner there and you, everybody's cheering you and this and that, well, that's wonderful. But if you don't make it across the finish line, nobody is celebrating the fact that you were ahead two-thirds of the way. Even the Apostle Paul had some concern about this subject. Toward the end of his life, he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he said this in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It suggests to me that these were maybe question marks in his mind. I want to make sure I'm one who finishes the race, someone who keeps the faith to the end. And when he got to the end of his life, this is what he could say. Now, the question I want to address here today is, what is the secret to going the distance, or what are some things that we can learn about how we can be steadfast and end strong spiritually? <clears throat> and I think we should, can learn some things from Jesus' example. My takeaway today is this, that we can go the distance, and I'm confident we can know that we're going to make it across the finish line and do really well spiritually toward the very end. We can end strong spiritually. But Jesus provides for us some good examples. And yet even Jesus acknowledged that there, there was a, a danger. When Jesus was with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to look at this story in a minute, he told his disciples, watch and pray so you don't enter into temptation. Now the question is, what temptation was he talking about? You know, it wasn't a temptation to lust or something like that. What was the temptation that he was concerned about for them? Watch and pray so you don't enter into temptation. You know what it was? It was to run away. It was to abandon Christ. And they didn't listen to what Jesus said. They did not watch and pray. And then when the, the mob came to take Jesus, all of them fled away because they, they were not prepared. But Jesus said, watch and pray. And I believe that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus himself faced the greatest temptation of his life. He'd never faced a temptation this great, and it was, I believe, again, the temptation, just like the disciples, to quit, to run away. He really struggled with this, and if we don't understand that, I don't believe we understand the humanity of Christ. Because I've talked before about the fact that even though we recognize that Jesus is fully God and he's fully human or fully man, when he was on this earth, he chose to operate within the realm of his humanity only. He chose to rely upon his Father for power, rely upon the Holy Spirit to perform miracles. He didn't do those in his own power. He was a man and he faced very, very real fears and concerns, struggles. And I believe it was in his own heart and mind that, I, you know, I better pray and I better watch lest I fall into the temptation of abandoning this mission that God has me on. Now, all of us, I think, are tempted at different times in our lives to kind of quit the race, to say, I'm tired of this. Or at the very least, I think all of us sometimes just drift away in terms of our spirituality. And, and at a certain point, we realize, boy, I'm really cold spiritually, and I'm just not close to God anymore. And so again, our question is, how do we make sure that we're strong and we go the distance? And we're going to look at the example of Jesus. Now, I want to talk about Jesus's inhumanity here for a little bit, because I want you to appreciate what he went through, and it's important to understand his humanity 
because it means that he's an example to follow. I want you to realize what Jesus knew because you need to understand that he struggled just like you and I do. It did. If Jesus operated in his deity, it'd be very easy to say, well, Jesus succeeded there because he's God. Jesus went the distance because he was God. But when you take that away, you realize Jesus was fully man, and he faced all this stuff alone. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him before it happened. And he did not know it because he was omniscient. He knew it because he knew his Bible. And he knew references like this one in Psalm 22 and verse 1, where we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Jesus knew that his father was going to abandon him at some point. He knew that. He uttered those exact words from the cross. It demonstrates he knew this psalm. And he called out, and he knew it was being fulfilled in that very moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because sin of the world had been charged to Jesus, and the Father turned away. But Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus knew the verses in Psalm 22, 16 through 18, that say, For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. He knew all this was going to happen to him. He even, I'm sure, understood the way in which he would die. You know, the Romans were the ones who did execution through the hands and the feet and crosses. That, when, when David wrote that psalm, there wasn't such a thing as a crucifixion. But in Jesus' day, there was, and he understood what was going to happen to him. So you can see the struggle we might have in the garden. He knew Isaiah 52, 14 and 15. <clears throat> Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he'll sprinkle many nations, and, and of course it means with his blood. Now, if you read this and you knew this, is, this was describing you, you realize his appearance would be so marred he wouldn't even look like, uh, like human anymore. People who've watched the passion of the Christ, you know, were disturbed by the scenes there, so realistic of all that Jesus endured for us. But the passion of the Christ does not capture what it was really like. It was worse. There are verses that talk about the fact they pulled out his beard he just yanked it out. Jesus endured. We just don't even have a clue. But Jesus did. He read these verses. He read from Isaiah 53, 3 and 5. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we're healed by his wounds. He knew he was going to be crushed and so, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we're going to see in a minute, he, he really, really, really did struggle, just like any of us would. And he was, I believe, tempted to abandon the, the whole plan. He was begging his father to get out of it. His father was saying no, and he had a choice to make. Would he go the distance or not? And of course, we know that he was able to do it. But what did he do? How did he go the distance? Well, I want to look at a passage here today that I think provides some clues. Now, before we look at the passage, I want to set the context for it. 
Jesus had just celebrated the Passover with his disciples. It was the night in which he was going to be arrested, and he knew that, of course. At a certain point during the Passover celebration, he picked up the bread, which was unleavened bread. Yeast in biblical times was a picture of sin, and this bread had no yeast. And Jesus held it up, and he said, this is my body, and then he said, broken for you, and he broke it. And then he held up the cup, the cup of wine, which wine looks like blood. And he said, this is the new covenant or new agreement that God is making with you, but it's going to be through my blood. Drink this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And in this moment, Jesus was indicating to his 12 apostles at that time, 12 were still there, that he was the Passover lamb. And it was, what he was saying must have been mind-boggling for them, but he was saying, I'm that. And if you know the story from the Old Testament of the Passover lamb, that the people of Israel had been in Egypt, and it was time for them to be set free. And God raised up Moses, and Moses went to Pharaoh, and, and they, Pharaoh was threatened with these 10 different horrible plagues that were going to come upon the Egyptians. And the 10th one was the worst. The last of the ten plagues was that the firstborn in every household throughout the land, both among Israel and the Egyptians, every firstborn son in every household was going to die. The angel of death was going to pass through, and the firstborn son in every household would die. But God gave a remedy. The remedy was, he told the people of Israel, take a lamb that is without any blemishes, perfect, and kill it. And take the blood of that lamb, and I want you to apply the blood to the top and the sides of the door of your house. And then when the angel passes by that house, he'll see the blood and then pass over it. And everyone that takes refuge in that house will be saved. Now Jesus, thousands of years later, is saying to his disciples, that's me, I'm, I'm the Passover lamb. And all who take refuge in my blood, who paint my blood on the door of their house, will live forever, will get eternal life. That's the promise God makes. And then when this Passover meal was done, we read that the disciples and Jesus, now there were only 11 of them because uh, Judas had been dismissed, they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we pick up the story. And we're going to read Matthew 26, 36 to 46. It's a fairly long section. But we find in here clues. And maybe as I'm reading, even think of what are some of the clues maybe that help explain how Jesus would go the distance. Beginning in verse 36, we read, Then Jesus came with them, with his 11 disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. And almost immediately, Judas showed up with a mob to arrest Jesus with swords and torches and clubs to take him. Now, again, my takeaway here today is that we can go the distance. What do we learn from the example of Jesus here? Well, all of my uh, points here begin with the letter P, so that's a boomer approach. I just want to admit it up front because it can get kind of corny. But anyway, it'll help you remember them, hopefully. Number one, Jesus relied on promises from God's Word. He relied on promises from God's Word. Now, this first point is more implied than it is is, uh, clearly articulated. But I want to make this point here that Jesus fully trusted in the Word of God. He viewed, and we know this from the way he talked about the Old Testament, that he viewed that the Old Testament was indeed, from beginning to end, it was the Word of God, and he trusted that it was true. Now, why does that matter? Well, it's because Jesus knew the ending of the story based on the Old Testament. Earlier, I read various verses that talk about everything Jesus was going to suffer, right? In every chapter that I chose from, all those chapters from which I took verses, they all end well, all of them. They end with worship or rejoicing or good news, what good is going to come from it. Jesus knew not only that he was going to suffer, but he saw the other side. He understood what God said would happen if he would go through with it. And so we read in the book of Hebrews that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. That's the thing that helped him endure, to go the distance. For the joy set before him, what joy? He knew the outcome. Isaiah 53 talks about all the people that would become children of God as a result of what Jesus was going to do. It was a wonderful thing. And we can endure a lot if we know you know, the outcome, if we know it's going to be good. Jesus knew that he would rise again from the dead, from Psalm 16 and verse 10. We read, for you will not abandon me to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Jesus knew all of this was going to happen. Now, he still, in his humanity, hoped there was another way. He said, take this cup from me. Please take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. That expression, by the way, take the cup, is, it, it comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's an allusion to a cup of suffering and a cup of wrath. Both are talked about in the Old Testament. The cup of God's wrath, which that's mentioned in both the Old and the New Testaments, and then there's a cup of suffering. And you say, well, why is it called a cup? Well, in biblical times, they used to, when they had wine, they'd put it in the wineskins, and the dregs of the wine would settle at the bottom of the wineskin, and sometimes it would get in your glass. 
And if you drank the dregs, they were so bitter. It was so, it was just horrible. You didn't want to drink the dregs of the wine. And so you tried to avoid that. But it became a picture of suffering and God's wrath. In the case of Jesus, the whole cup is filled with dregs. And he's being asked to drink the whole cup, to drink it all down. And he knows it's going to be a bitter pill. It's going to be a hard thing for him to do. But he was willing to do it. We have, as Christians, God's Word. And more and more, I think people are either drifting away. I don't think we realize what a wonderful resource God's Word is for us. And a lot of people, I think, more and more, too, are walking away from the Bible because they don't believe it's actually true. They don't, they don't know that it's the Word of God. And once you lose confidence in that, why would you read it? Now, I want to suggest here today that the prophecies I've already read here today prove it's the Word of God. Nobody can predict the future but God. Others can try. They can make guesses. Even the devil does not have the ability to predict the future. He can't do it. But these prophecies I read were written from 700 to 1,000 years before Christ was born, and they came true exactly, even in terms of what they were going to do with his clothing. It is the Word of God, and we stand firmly on it. And it will make the difference that we, whether we go the distance or not. I am just finishing up a, a second book I've been writing on the subject of fear and how faith and fear intersect. It's 20 stories. Uh, ten of them are on uh, Bible stories. Ten of them are personal stories that I've shared here before. And one of the stories has to do with when I was bullied in high school. I hated my freshman year of high school. Some people look at their freshman year of high school as like the best years of their life starting then, you know, their high school year. I mean, mine wasn't. It was horrible. I had this bully that was waiting for me. Now, I never did get beat up. But I hated my freshman year of high school. And I was so afraid of the guy, I ended up in the hospital because of my stomach. I worried so much about it. I didn't realize it at the time until I got to the hospital. The bully disappeared, and then the stomachache disappeared too, so I put it together. But there's something I love about my freshman year of high school. It was the year I began reading my Bible and having a quiet time. There was no one I could talk to about what I was going through. I didn't want to tell my parents. My brothers didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it, but God did. And I began reading my Bible every day. And I found especially comfort and encouragement in the Psalms. And I came to realize God was for me and God was with me and God would protect me and take care of me. And I've had that habit ever since. And we have these amazing promises in God's Word where you stand firm on them. For example, I know I'm going to heaven. I don't think I am. I know I am. In the core of my being, I'm confident I'm going to heaven. How do you know? You could ask. Well, John 3.16, God still loved the world. He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. I'm holding God at His word. I believe He tells the truth. I put my trust in Christ. I have eternal life. End, uh, end of the matter. And it produces a confidence and security as we move forward. In addition to the promises of God, though, Jesus also chose special people to be with him. He chose special people. <clears throat> we all need other believers in our lives to go the distance. We need encouragement from other Christians, especially when we're going through a hard time, when things are difficult, or when we're tempted to give up. We need people along with us for the faith journey. And Jesus had this during this 
difficult time. You remember I said how Jesus went, into the, went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he brought his 11 apostles, his closest friends, with him. That in and of itself doesn't prove the point I'm making here that we need other people. But it's what he did next that does prove it to me. Let me read the verses again, beginning in verse 36. We read, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Now this is the part. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. It's a phrase, with me. Remember, Jesus is operating on, in his humanity. He, didn't want, he did not want to face this thing alone. So he brought the 11, of course, initially. Judas, of course, again, is gone. <clears throat> but then he went further, it says, and he took his three closest friends. He had a special relationship with those three. He said, I want you to come with me. And then he opened his heart to them. This is what I'm going through. This is really, really tough. So please stay and, and pray with me. When we know that we have the support of other people, it helps us through the distance. But when we lack that support, it's easier to quit. First job I ever had was working as a busboy for a big boy restaurant, you know, the Shoney's Big Boy restaurant in the Chicago area. And so I didn't, I didn't mind the job. I was, you know, a, a dishwasher. I'd pick up the, the plates from the tables, clear the tables, and then go and wash them, rinse them off, put them in the dishwasher. <clears throat> After it was done, I'd put them away and this and that. I was working there for probably three weeks when something happened one day. I walked in, and I happened to open this cabinet. I was looking for something, and I saw stacks of dishes. I mean, dozens and dozens, 50, maybe 100. They were stacked up high, and, and the whole cabinet was filled with these dirty dishes. I thought, what happened? And I, I knew what it was, and I put it together. The guy on the morning shift got lazy. He said, I don't feel like doing the dishes today, so I'm going to hide them. So everything looks so clean. I walk in, and then I find out there are all these dishes. And of course, restaurants like this produce a lot of dishes, you know, especially at the breakfast. And so I was working the second shift. This guy was on the first shift. So I usually would come in at 2 o'clock. I'd leave at 10. <clears throat> well, on that day, I left probably at midnight because I had to wait for the dishwasher to run through the cycle. And I'd reload it and wait again. And well, I put up with that the first day. I put up with that the second day. The third day it happened, I, I went into my boss and I said, the guy on the, the first shift is, is not doing his job. He's putting all the dirty dishes under the cabinet, and I'm having to wash them all. And his response to me was, and I kid you not, he said, you big baby. What's wrong with doing a few little dishes? Why, why are you making a big, big deal about it? And I said, because I'm getting home at midnight or one o'clock. And, and he wasn't going to do anything about it, I didn't think. And so I walked out, and I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I gave him one day to see whether he would address the problem. And when I came in at 2 that next day and found all those dishes there, I walked right into his office. I quit. I've never done that. I'm not a quitter. Never done it before, never done it since. He immediately offered me a raise, a significant raise. We'll give you this raise if you'll stay. 
I said no. And the reason I quit was because I didn't have the support. I needed to know this guy had my back. I needed to know I had support from him, and then I could work because I enjoyed the job. But without that support, it's just as easy to quit because you feel like you're on your own and you can't make it. But we all need people in our lives to help us go the distance. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, "Don't forsake your assembling together as some do. Encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Third resource Jesus had was a prepared mind. Jesus relied on promises. He had、uh, he chose special people to be with him, and then third, he had a prepared mind. What I mean by this is he was alert, he was awake, he was、uh, had expectation, watching what was going on, so that he'd be ready for everything. Now let's read verses thirty-eight and then forty and forty-one again from Matthew twenty-six. We read. Then he said to them, Jesus said to his disciples, "My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here." And then he says, "And stay awake with me." Then in verse forty, then he came to his disciples, found them sleeping. He asked Peter, "So couldn't you stay awake?" There's the word again with me. One hour. Stay awake and pray, so you won't fall into or enter into temptation, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is very weak. Now. It looks like from this version of the Bible that Jesus was telling his disciples, "I want you to pray and don't go to sleep on me." That's what it looks like it's saying, and and this is a proper translation to stay awake. But this, I believe, should be translated differently. A scholar by the name of J. Swanson, in his Dictionary of Biblical Languages, says that this phrase "stay awake" should be translated "keep watch." Be alert. Stay vigilant. What Jesus was asking for was prayerful vigilance. In some versions of the Bible, that's how they translate it. Be alert. Stay alert, because otherwise you're going to be caught on off guard. You're going to be caught unawares. Now, I believe that we as Christians need to have a certain. We need to be awake. We need we need to be alert. We need to be looking around. We need to be aware of what's going on. And because we're not many times, I think when something happens, we go by the wayside. Let me give you some examples. A lot of Christians do not understand that Christians sometimes <clears throat> will suffer. That that we're not exempt from suffering. The bad things happen to Christians. Now, if you doubt whether that's true, consider the example we're talking about here. Jesus, no one was ever so good, no one was ever so righteous, no one was ever so pure, and no one suffered as much as Jesus did. Jesus Himself said, "In this world, you'll have tribulation. Things are going to—they're going to be hard sometimes, and sometimes, for us, even devastating." And I've known Christians before because they—they they weren't aware of this, or. They didn't believe this. They weren't alert to it. <clears throat> When a bad thing happened, many times a tragedy, they walked away. Their perspective was: if God didn't spare me this thing, He must not be good. He must not be God, and they walked away. And and that happens sometimes. We're just not alert. We're we're, we're not understanding how God might want to use this particular difficulty in our lives. Another example would be temptation, where we're told throughout the pages of the Bible to be alert about temptation. Are you are you aware that when you're in certain situations, you're going to be tempted in some pretty strong ways? If you're not alert to it, 
You'll find yourself in some pretty difficult circumstances where you end up saying yes and you should have said no. And suddenly your marriage is jeopardized and other things because you are not alert. Or, as the Apostle Peter put it, we have an enemy called the devil. And he's trying to wipe us out. And so Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, he said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He's looking for someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He then goes on to say, after you've suffered for a little bit at the hands of the devil, then God himself will come and strengthen and encourage you. But what if you're not aware that there's even a battle going on? And so we need to be alert. And this is what I think Jesus was saying to his disciples. Stay alert because it's about, to, it's about to go down. But the disciples, again, they did not stay alert. Only Jesus did. And he's the only one then that went the, went the distance that night. <clears throat> Paul wrote to the pastors in the city of Ephesus these words. He said, be on guard for yourselves and all your flock. Even be alert to what's happening with our own spiritual welfare. How am I doing spiritually? Do you stop to evaluate that? How are things going? Or Peter talked about things that wage war against the soul. Watch out for things that wage war against your spiritual well-being. There are things that we expose ourselves to that do damage to our soul. Are you aware of those things? Things we watch, things we hear, situations in which we place ourselves? It calls for diligence. Always to be alert because the devil's trying to trip us up. And many have fallen and walked away. Finally, Jesus prayed, which I've alluded to this one all along. But in addition, he trusted God with the outcome. And I think this is very important. Prayer is one of the greatest and most underutilized tools that God gives us. And Jesus is someone, he, he prayed But it's a little bit of a mystery that Jesus even needed to pray when you think about who he was. But let's read again verse 36, Matthew 26, 36. It says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And so he went over to pray. And while he prayed, he was trusting. See, prayer is is not just a... uh, People view prayer as like a, a, a magic wand type thing, like if I pray, then God answers Prayer is about a relationship. Jesus entered into prayer asking for a specific thing and then trusting God with the outcome. He really did give it over to God. And he did it repeatedly. We continue reading in verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then it says, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping. He asked, Peter, couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter temptation. Because the spirit is willing. I know you you want to do the right thing. But the flesh is weak. All of them should have been praying. Jesus walked with his father all the time. He walked in step with the Holy Spirit constantly. There was never a moment when Jesus in his humanity was not relying on his Holy Spirit. So then it raises the question, well, then why would he have to 
pray. And so desperately, I mean, you see him in the garden going away, praying to the point of, of bleeding out blood, you know. That's the desperation he had. He prayed because he needed in that moment extra grace. He needed extra help to go the distance. The gospel writer Luke records this account, and there's some question whether or not this was in Luke's original gospel, but Luke talks about the fact that when Jesus prayed this prayer, that God sent an angel, and the angel strengthened him because he needed the strength at that moment. I believe that event really took place. Jesus needed grace. If he did, how much more do we? And yet we don't stop to pray. We don't beg God in prayer and get desperate before God in prayer for things to change. But oftentimes, that's exactly what we need. James wrote, you have not because you ask not. There are certain things we will not receive because we've not thought to ask and, and get before God. So what's the takeaway here today? Well, again, I'm, I'm confident we can go the distance. <clears throat> Jesus models this for us through the promises he claimed, through the people that he chose to have with him. He was alert. He had this prepared mind. He prayed and trusted God with the outcome. I want to encourage you to consider which of these in your life might be the weakest. Maybe the one that you want to devote yourself to. <clears throat> Is there one of these that would make sense for you? For example, some of you maybe need to reconnect with the practice of having a quiet time. Reconnect with being strengthened every day through God's Word. Maybe that's the step for you. Some of you maybe need to recommit and reconnect with God's people because you've been kind of going it alone. COVID made it, by the way, very easy to do that. Some of you maybe want to evaluate your mindset and ask this question, am I alert to what's going on? Am I even aware of where I am spiritually and what's happening in my life spiritually? And maybe some of us need to recommit to prayer. I believe that when we do these things, it's going to give us the ability to go the distance. Jesus, when he went in prayer, he waited upon God. The Bible talks about this, wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord. The waiting part, whatever we're facing, is the most difficult part, where we need these four things the most. It's the most difficult part. But I'm convinced as we wait on the Lord, we get the strength we need and I'm convinced that as we wait on the Lord, we're able then to hear his voice and he's able to lead us from the darkness into the light. Let me close with this chorus from a song that's titled, I Won't Move. It goes this way, when my eyes cannot see, it's your voice that's leading me. Out of darkness and into light, it's your love breaking through the night. I think Jesus experienced that that night. Let's pray. Father, you've given us what we need. Your spirit lives within us. You've given us your people. You've given us your word. So many things, oh Lord. We want to be ones who finish strong, to go across that finish line, oh Lord, and that we could say as, as Paul did, we finished the race, we've kept the faith. We want to go the distance for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.